Hello and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode number 34. I'm Ryan and I'm joined by the other nerds, Christina, Carissa, and Rory. Together we take on the week's comics. Each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, and then come on back. Each week one of us picks their favorite book of the week, and that's our pick of the week. This week that nerd was Carissa. However, due to the nefarious actions of some rogue Hydra agents, we do not have the audio for the first review. So I will be doing a summary. Chris's pick for Pick of the Week was Doctor Strange number 8. Her companion song is Laser Eyes from the Syphil and Ollie show. Because when she's read the part in Doctor Strange where the Witchfinder wolves have laser eyes... This is immediately what she thought of, so here's something from Carissa's weird little mind. I've got laser eyes, and I know what you're thinking. It comes as no surprise. Christmas lights are blinking, and I'm so curious, and I'm so curious, and I'm so curious, and I've got laser eyes. Strange number eight is from Marvel Comics. It's written by Jason Aaron. Pencils are by Chris Bacallo. Inks by Tim Townsend, Al Vey, Mark Irwin, John Livesay, and Victor Olazaba. Colors are by Chris Bacallo, Antonio Fabella, and Java Tartaglia. So, once again, Jason Aaron and Chris Bacallo knock it out of the park with the next chapter of Last Days of Magic. This one is sees Doctor Strange on a quest to recover the last bits of magic that are left in the world. There are not very many of them, and the ones that are left are very, very weak. So this has him down in the sewers somewhere with uh, sewer alligators chasing him, and he's propelling uh, down a bunch of weird vines, and he's basically trying to get into this ancient dragon horde. Thinks that there's magic uh, at. He goes into this this horde... But these Witchfinder wolves, the ones that we've been calling the cybernetic battle cats, are hot on his trail. They're chasing him down, and they're soon to make their appearance. So he's got some third-rate magic items that uh, basically only have, you know, one or two charges left in them. Like, there's this helmet he has that will let him uh, levitate for, like, 30 seconds and see in the dark. So he uses that to kind of get past some of the traps, and then he turns on the, the light and there are a bunch of snakes there that are ready to kill him. He uses some crushed magical flowers that he picked the last of the week before. So he's he's kind of scraping the ba- bottom of the barrel here for magic items in order to get this one magic item that he thinks is better than what he's got. He thinks this might be their, their last hope there. He uses a really cool turn of phrase here where he says he doesn't deserve to be called the Sorcerer Supreme anymore, that he should be called the Archaeologist of the Impossible which Rory thought was a pretty cool turn of phrase, and I have to agree. So anyway, so he's in this dragon horde, and these Witchfinder wolves, which are basically wolves with freaking laser beams strapped to their head that can sense magic and are hunting him down. So there's this this skeleton of a dragon, which we don't know how long it's been dead. Like, did it die when magic died out, or has it been dead for a long time? We're not really sure. So Doctor Strange has these slugs that can sense magic, and they feed off of it. So he's got this one on like a little leash that's kind of rooting through the treasure of all these burned out artifacts looking for the ones that still have some magic. And while he's doing it, these wolves show up and start firing laser beams at him from their eyes, which is what made Carissa think of the 
the song we heard. So he finally finds the item that he's looking for, which is this magical bow. Which kind of reminds me of, from the old Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, the ranger has an energy bow, and that's kind of what this looks like. But it, it's not all that powerful. I think Rory uh, or Carissa compared it to the plus two bow you find when you're like a low-level adventurer. So that's that's the most potent weapons that they have right now. But it's enough for Doctor Strange to kind of fight his way out past the wolves and end up back with the uh, Scarlet Witch and El, the sorcerer from Mexico who's chilling in his lowrider and Scarlet Witch is strapped to the teeth with shotguns and daggers waiting for him. So he shows up with the wolves hot on his tail and Scarlet Witch starts opening fire on them with uh, shotguns and they end up basically blowing up a bridge with the wolves on it. And then they go to look at the trunk of the car that has all the different artifacts that they've recovered. So there's that magical bow, there's like a genie lamp, there's a teddy bear which is from one of the stories of Last Days of Magic with a a girl who was basically doing the like Winnie the Pooh story at the time where she was out in the woods with her magical stuffed animal friends and then magic died so she was left in a snowstorm with nothing but a, a teddy bear. We don't know what happened with the girl but it seems like the bear is here so hopefully Doctor Strange found her before it's too late but we, we don't know. The Last Days of Magic are here and things are getting pretty grim. Some of the others want to call the Avengers Doctor Strange says that they're not magical, that this is their problem to deal with. Kind of a debate about whether that's a good idea or not. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea not to call the Avengers. Doctor Strange has some pretty deep connections to the Marvel Universe. He and Iron Man are beard bros, so he could call in Iron Man if he wanted. Patsy Walker is a friend of his who can sense magic and seems like she'd be really useful here. There's also the rest of the Defenders that he used to lead. So there's lots of people that he could call in. But for right now, it's just the magical people on their own. So I had said that I would be really upset if at the end of this we find out that friendship is the magic that's left in the world. And if that is what happens, I'll be really disappointed. That that idea can go fuck itself and the My Little Pony it rode in on. But we don't know what's going to happen. But we know Doctor Strange is pretty desperate. And he does this uh, scrying ritual where he, he cuts his arm and the blood drips down on this map of the world and shows him where the different magical uh, things are in the world. Which we talked about that we've seen in other tropes uh, in movies like uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes and Buffy and in other, other things. It's a pretty common scrying device. So that's our magical team out uh, in the world trying to be archaeologists of the impossible and rescue these magic items to use to fight the Empirical. But we turn back to the Sanctum Santorum where the Empirical is in there destroying everything. So they've found his library and they've burned everything in there except for one last book that they're going to take to the Imperator himself to destroy and that's when they find this fridge out in the middle of nowhere and they don't understand what it is they think it's like for cooling food but they're not sure why it's not in the kitchen and that's when Doctor Strange's librarian pops out and throws some of the food that's in the fridge which if you remember from some of the earlier Doctor Strange stories in particular when we keep referencing the art of puking without puking, that Doctor Strange eats some really strange food. So the food splashes on their face, they start screaming that it burns, and she grabs the book and and takes off. Wong is in there, and he has this teleportation rod that he basically has her grab, and they teleport away to Tibet, where they start talking about what happened, and she mentions that she opened the cellar door before she left. 
And Wong is not happy about that. He's really freaked out that the cellar door is open. And that's when you cut back to this really creepy scene of the empirical forces going down into the cellar door, which is where they sense a lot of magic coming from. Um, But they thought it was cleared earlier because they sent a squad down there to check it out. But they say the squad hasn't reported back in, and now this other squad is going to go down there, which is the setup for basically for a horror movie. An idea that's been going throughout not only Doctor Strange, but all of the Marvel mystical universe is that magic has a price that has to be paid. And Doctor Strange keeps saying that a lot of this is his fault because he hasn't paid the price. And what you find out that he and Wong have done, in addition to those monks that they created back in whatever city it was, that he can channel his sickness into and that they'll take the sickness for him, they've created this this monster thing down in the cellar that's made of rage and pain and suffering. So it's a pure creature of, of hate and, and suffering. It looks really creepy. It's like a wall of flesh with a bunch of mouths and faces on it and this huge eyeball. One image that they keep repeating throughout this is the staircase that they have to go down. It's this kind of spiral staircase that you're looking down at from a, an overview down. It's a really cool scene. And then we see the preview cover for the next issue is the same thing with this giant eye at the bottom of the well. So that promises to be really creepy. It seems like there's things that Strange has been doing that are going to come back to have to be solved, that prices are going to have to be paid finally. So this book is is really great. The art is fantastic. The way that the world is in color, except when the empiricals are around or in gray, really kind of reinforces visually the idea that they are have no creativity or a passion to them, that they're just cold empirical science. Jason Aaron's writing is spectacular as always. He's a, a favorite of the show and continues to prove why. We all gave it the same rating. We all gave it four and a half stars. So that was our pick of the week. Okay, so I had Aliens Defiance number two, the issue we've all been waiting for. Dark Horse Comics, written by Brian Wood, art by Tristan Jones, colors by Dan Jackson. Tristan Jones, I like that name. That sounds cool. (laughs) Where we left off before was the main character, Hendrix, she had basically was on this ship with a bunch of synthetics that were they're trying to find out what Wayland Yutani is up to. So they were heading towards this uh, space station, LV-4440, to find out what's going on. So that's kind of where it leaves off, is it shows uh, her, you know, having like basically like a, a military flashback, because she's got like this injured back. So she's having a, a flashback of being in combat, and then like these synthetics are like waking her up because they arrived on the, on the station. She has like a lot of like banter with this uh, the synthetic. Uh, I think Davis is his name. Yeah, they call him Designation Davis. They scan like the whole station's down, and they're they're detecting from thermal. They detect a bunch of heat in one part of the ship, so they they kind of know what they're in for. But they're basically like showing up to reload, get the get the evidence that they need, and hopefully get the fuck out. They go in, and of course they find you know. They also need all the weapons and ammo that are on that station because they used a shit ton of it fighting those aliens in the last issue. They're really hard to kill, so it took a lot of ammo and weapons. So they're looking for that, mainly. And if there's any survivors, trying to find them, too. Yeah, yeah, because they're, they're really tough to take down. So, you know, of course they go in and they're they're going to find this stuff. And, of course, they've got the information that they want to get, too. Because it's like the more that they can get, the whole idea is that they go to these stations, they download all the, the data from the ship itself so that they know exactly what happened. And before Waylon yutani can show up, delete it all. So they find an alien that's already dead and stuff, get a good look at it, and then... Uh, 
later on, she gets all the uh, armament, and then they end up running into basically like a... I always forget the terminology behind it, but it's like the hive is where they have all the bodies so that they could reproduce. But it's like at the same time, like they run into the eggs, which are where the face huggers come from. They run into a bunch of them. Is that an alien queen they run into? They don't run into a queen because queens are huge. They just run into one, but it's like there's a bunch of eggs there, which that's all full of face huggers, which is basically just death. Like a nest. And then get jumped by an alien. Or is that is that a queen? I don't think so. It looks too small to be a queen to me. Yeah, because usually the queen's like uh, freaking huge and like, you know, just like ant, ant queens. It's like they're big and they're not mobile and... I think just a regular one. Queens are damn near impossible to kill, so I don't know. So they, like, hose this, you know, hose this whatever it is, whether it be the queen or whether it be, like, a normal one, and then chucks a grenade out in the middle of them just to, and she's talking about how, you know, like, Marines, like, won't, like, let themselves be counted out and blah, blah, blah. That's one of the things that's certain. It's It looks like every, all the synth- synthetics are, like, concerned with her injury a lot or that's what she seems to perceive is that they all seem like they're that was one thing that i liked kind of tying back to the original movies the movies have a really strong theme of basically sexual violence oh yeah uh, with the aliens as metaphors for that so i felt that her physical disability here and the concern about the gaze of other people on it and what they're going to think of her was kind of a nice parallel to that vulnerability and sense of being victimized the synthetics are starting to be concerned with her injury and stuff like that and worried that she's you know slowing down the team and stuff but that's kind of where they left off they kind of left us high and dry so definitely ready for another one yeah the artwork's good and solid just like it was before still has that really gritty 1980s aliens movie feel what do you guys think i'm in the same spot i was with the last issue it was really gritty it was really interesting it felt like aliens I think they're hitting the right notes. Neither hate it nor love it. I just think, yeah, it's good. It's interesting. It feels like I'm watching. The one thing that I do think that stood out in my mind was, so it had a part of the, the story. And then when it cut to kind of like the title page, mm-hmm. the way that it it had the, the spread and the panels and said like, by, you know, so-and-so in the title, <laughs> that was a very cinematic storyboard movie feel. Like I really liked how that lit was laid out. That spread with those panels I thought was really well done, and that's like the high point for this issue for me. Visually, there's three things that I really noticed and liked about this. There basically are three art styles throughout the book. You have a really crisp, well-defined views of outer space and these massive ships passing along. And that kind of contrasts with the gritty, dingy, like, construction site feel of the inside of the ships that Rory mentioned as being that 1980s aesthetic for alien movies. And then when you actually see the aliens, they look really organic. Like, it, it feels like in those panels, if you put your hand down, it would come back covered in goo. Yeah, which is what we said last, the first issue, yeah. And then plot-wise and writing-wise, I was really impressed with the pacing of the reveal for the aliens. There doesn't start out with, you know, them them fighting right away. There's tension. They see the heat signatures, and they find the dead aliens and the signs of the battle. Then they slowly encounter it until finally they fight the creature. I think that building of suspense really adds a lot to the book. I mean, the aliens' movies are full of tension and dread as well as action. So, I mean, if it was just aliens and marines fighting each other for 25 pages, that would be really boring. And that is not at all what this book is. It's a lot better than that. I don't know. I've been really liking it. So, I'm going to give it five creepy eggs. I'll give it 
three smells like garbage fruit air. I will give it three space simplifies for those colonial marines. So that brings us to probably the most talked about comic this week or any real week in recent memory. We could not not cover this. <laughs> uh, we have Captain America, Steve Rogers, number one by Marvel Comics, written by Nick Spencer, art by Jesus Sale. So this has been a very controversial issue, which we'll get into some of the reasons why. I will say that Nick Spencer is a really great writer. He's done Ant-Man, which we really liked last week. He did Assault on Pleasant Hill, which we also liked, which was one of our picks of the week. So I have a lot of confidence in his writing. If this had come from a writer that I wasn't confident in, I might have a different opinion. I trust him to tell a good story. I understand why people are upset about this issue, because Captain America is a really iconic figure. I think a lot of the criticism I'm hearing is coming from people I think who don't read comics very much. I think people who have had their introduction to Captain America from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and just as a general cultural icon are upset because they don't understand these plot twists and how they work in comics. That whatever happens here is certainly not going to be what Captain America is like two years from now, five years from now, that this will be a temporary shift, just like everything in comics is temporary. And I think this really points out a lot of the ways that writers and artists are screwed. If they keep characters exactly the same, they get really boring and very not very dynamic, and people aren't interested in the same story over and over and over again. But if you change the character too much, people get up in arms if you're changing a classic, especially with a character who's been around for like 75 years. Like, look at what happened with Superior Spider-Man <laughs> a few years ago. People were up in arms about that, and... It turned out to be one of the best runs of Spider-Man in a long time. Or look at when the Falcon became Captain America, which is also written by Nick Spencer. People were up in arms that suddenly an African-American was Captain America. Or look at Thor becoming being a woman, being Jane Foster. People were really upset about that. There's These characters change. Or when Wolverine died. There's lots and lots of changes that happen to characters, and the thing to know with comics is none of them are permanent. So, story-wise, this is basically a tale comparing and contrasting Steve Rogers with this Hydra bomber. So it shows you both of their horrible, shitty childhoods in poverty with an abusive, alcoholic father, and you get to see both of their lives in chaos. The difference between the two is that Steve has his mother, and there's also a woman who appears to them when his father is beating his mother in like a drunken rage and stops the father from doing that, and that this is kind of what sets Steve down his path. And we'll loop back to that in a minute, because that ends up being really important. But you also see the bomber in his life and how he has the same beginning but there's no one there to stop him from spiraling out of here and it's really interesting he basically in a moment of desperation meets up with one of his friends from prison who he fell into like the Aryan Brotherhood because he needed protection who wants him to go see this amazing new speaker who turns out to be the Red Skull and the Red Skull is going basically full Trump in his speech he's talking about these refugees that are coming to our countries and taking our jobs and bringing crime and violence and that they're immigrants that are treated better than hardworking people and they're the ones that are protected and someone needs to take our country back. We need to basically build a wall and make America great again. I mean, you could have lifted it directly from a Trump 
speech, in my opinion. So it's really interesting to see kind of the roots of fanaticism, that it shows people in desperate situations and how they don't just wake up evil. They go down this path where someone points to the other and shows them that this is the root of all their problems. And if they deal with this other, that they can make their country great again and i think that's a really interesting point to be made i don't know if you guys noticed i this is something i really picked up is that while he is going on through his speech he's also uh you know the infamous speech hitler gives out where it's like he's making all these crazy gestures and stuff if you watch those are the exact same gestures that he is making in his speech i thought that was just uh, that was just a stroke of genius from the artist yeah so plot wise captain america is trying to stop this hydra bomber that's on a train and he's battling his way through the train and this is kind of where you see that it's nick spencer because nick spencer loves to give you kind of goofy third string villains and sidekicks and we have two sidekicks in here you have I want to say Jack Flag and Free Spirit, who are kind of Captain America wannabe sidekicks, and they're helping Captain America with this. So Cap gets to the compartment with the Hydra Bomber and is telling him that he doesn't have to do this. You know, there's a better way that they talk to his mother and his mother misses him and he doesn't have to do this. And that's when the bomber tells him, you know, look around. There's nowhere to go back home to. This Basically, this country doesn't belong to us anymore. And that's when he pushes the button to blow up the train. And Cap, you know, catapults out of the train using his shield to shield himself from the explosion. And this is where you start seeing the battle between Baron and Zemo and the Red Skull. They're both kind of battling for control over Hydra and what Hydra is. The Red Skull is going towards a more, this is for the working class, this is to help people who, you know, work hard take back their country, whereas Baron Zemo thinks that it's for the elite for the elite to rule over the the masses. But Zemo's kind of down on his luck and has to work with some second-rate, third-string, terrible supervillains. Oh, that was so great. Poor Baron Zemo. Yeah, that whole scene on the roof was so fucking hilarious. So we have this battle on the rooftop between Captain America and his two second-string sidekicks and Baron Zemo and his second-string supervillains who have ignored the advice that Nick Spencer gave people in last week's Ant-Man, which is don't work for the Nazis. They may pay you really well, but they will leave you fight they make their great escape, which is exactly what Zemo does. He takes off in his jet and leaves them to fight. He has the has Dr. Selvig uh, in the jet, who he's using to try and find the Cosmic Cube. Steve sees what's going on and goes after the jet and leaves the second string guys to fight each other. So he's up on top of the jet, and we get to see kind of this cool yes. thing that Cap's new shield that was does, so fucking which is cool. it has this like plasma thing that he uses to cut through the top of the jet, and he drops down in there and starts fighting Baron. Baron Zemo, and that's when basically during the fight, Baron Zemo gets tapped on the shoulder by Jack Flagg who says something to the effect of you know, I've wanted to do this since I was a kid and punches Baron Zemo uh, and knocks him out, and that's when Steve goes, has this inner thought monologue where he says, oh, this guy was a hero, he saw what needed to be done, he did what had to be done without thought of himself or the consequences then you kind of get this panel where he's like, and that's why this is so tragic he deserved more than this And Steve basically picks him up by the shoulder and throws him out of the plane. And that's when he turns to Dr. Selvig and says what is the big shocking reveal for this episode, which is Captain America saying, Hail Hydra. Surprise, motherfucker. (laughs) 
Now, all this got me to thinking about what has caused Captain America to say Hail Hydra. My first thought is that Kobik has done something to him. There's a panel where he says that he doesn't recognize his own body anymore and that he feels out of sorts, which leads me to believe that might be true. Also, the scenes that were shown of his interaction with that woman from Hydra is about someone reaching out to the poor and disadvantaged and helping them. So maybe Steve is the third way of Hydra that he's trying to do, that he wants to somehow use them to reach out to people who are in trouble. I really don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I'm really interested to see what happens. He's the Bernie Sanders of Hydra. (laughs) Which he also thought was an interesting way of showing how extremist groups and criminal organizations and street gangs often recruit people as they find people who have no no family, no sense of identity, and no hope. And they give them a sense of family and a way out of their bad situation. So I thought that was an interesting examination of a way that you recruit extremists and criminals. Recruiting like unemployed and stuff. You build a loyalty to out of like, you know, kind gestures until they feel like they have to side with you. Actually, my favorite part was with the, the Baron where it has the new henchmen that showed up and they're just like, oh yeah, I thought this was because we're running out of jobs and they're like totally like this. He's like, oh, I have to start at this level again. He's like pinching the bridge of his nose, and like shaking his head. I was like, oh, that's great. I try to play devil's advocate on a lot of posts that I saw, at least for friends. And Ryan said a lot of things that I've almost said verbatim since the beginning was that anyone who knows comic knows that it's gonna, things are gonna change. It, nothing is true. I think me and Christina make comments. Oh, it's probably a scroll again. <laughs> a mutual friend, at least from the three of us, who was like very upset. It's like, I understand that it's so bad because it is the one thing against the core of who Steve is, of the whole like Nazi thing. That I get the uproar about that. That is a little too much. They should have had him go heal maybe in another way. I understand they were trying to stir. They were going for an extreme. That being said, I was like, but I'm still, I wasn't super worked up about it. And, you know, and I do react a lot. Like I hated the whole, you know, I'm Han Solo's wife thing. I get it. I react to clickbaits and I still will. But weirdly, when it comes to superhero comics, I'm like, dude, remember when Superman died? Did he stay dead? No. Okay, move on. You know, so I feel like it's going to get worked out. And I also agree that I think it's more Kobik thing. Like, I, that was the first thing out of my mouth. Well, it's Kobik or 616. I mean, and technically, she did do something to him. She made him young. So the fair fact that, it, that it's already admitted that something has changed, that she's probably could have changed him even more another way. Or it's an alternate reality. Like, you, know, like you made this choice or this choice, and what I turned you back to was the, the choice that you could have made. Yeah, let's remember that Nick Spencer is the one who wrote uh, Assault on Pleasant Hill, which is where Kobik is. So this Cosmic Cube, I really strongly believe has something to do with this yeah i mean here's the thing is like first of all i just want to point out that people and the internet nowadays tend to freak out over fucking everything that's the starter so it's like you know oh oh surprise surprise somebody's getting upset about something you know and i mean people really like over inflate shit and then catch on to whatever's on their facebook or their twitter feed
read in the first place. And, and yeah, I, I pretty much agree. It's like most of what I've seen, it seems like most people are like, you know, oh no, he's, you know, it's completely inconceivable. Okay, listen, we're talking about a universe where a guy who was a skinny little pencil neck geek shoots himself full of super steroids and now he's a bad motherfucker jacking Nazis for 70 years. You're talking about a universe where guys can fire fucking lasers from their hands. Is it so inconceivable that somebody could change their fucking mind? Especially for the, you know, when it comes down to like the actual, you know, plot and they're not really, we haven't really gotten anywhere with the plot yet, so we don't really know whether the arc's bullshit or not. Maybe Steve is double agenting on this one, you know, and it's like, haha, I'm gonna find out who they are, where they are, and root them out, their source. Maybe it's, who the fuck knows? Maybe, yeah, more than likely, Kobik changed something in him, or maybe this is some sort of weird alternate universe thing, maybe Red Skull's fucking goddamn hypnotized him, I don't fucking know. It's the first issue. Calm down, people. I definitely think there are people who are just reacting to it because of that and don't understand that comic books do this. <laughs> but there is a fraction of the people who are freaking out oh. because it's so fundamentally not who Steve is at the core. I can kind of get behind that. I understand. That does, it is an irritation. I think too often people want to dismiss genocidal evil as people just decided to be evil one day that they were just that way like everyone in germany in 1939 woke up and decided let's be evil nazis and that's not what happened a madman took control of a country step by step and brought people along with him until they were too deep into the madness and terror to really do anything about it i remember when i was in the holocaust museum and there was a video that was playing of this old german guy talking and i'm paraphrasing it's been 20 years and it was in german and it was subtitles basically what he said was when the nazi party started we weren't sure if it was a good thing with some bad elements or a bad thing with some good elements and by the time we could figure it out it was too late so I think it's easy to make evil into cartoon villainy, but I think this issue actually shows you how you fanatics come to be, how they're built, how they're made, and I think it's actually a very thoughtful issue, and I think people who actually read it will enjoy it, and will probably not be very offended by it. It may actually get something out of it. Oh, I still got more shit I want to say about this one. I can understand if you want to get pissed off about something that's outside of Steve Rogers' character. I get that. What I'm not understanding is, how can you read this comic and not think that it was an awesome run? There's so many awesome elements for that in this story. First of all, Red Skull's speech, that was just some epic writing right there you have flashbacks through steve's childhood which were just well done they were interesting they were great to read it kind of provided a reason why he may have gone the way that he did in this one you know you have the comedy towards the end with baron zemo the artwork's excellent they combine a great serious story they multiple elements of a great serious story they throw in some comedy that's fucking hilarious later on and they drop like this huge game changing epic panel at the very end. I mean, I really don't see how anybody dislike this. I'm not really like a huge Cap fan myself, because I generally find him boring. This spices it up for me. I'm excited to see this run. I don't understand how anybody couldn't. Sometimes the, you know, the plot lines have to change. You know, every once in a while, Hulk Hogan has to lose the belt. And that's where we're at right here. I loved it. I'd say, I'm going to give it four and three quarter Red Skull 
skull speeches. Yeah, I feel like I need to read the issue, and I do think a lot of it is some of these new, especially with the internet part, it is a lot of these newer fans that are, I don't want to turn away newer fans. I'm glad, like, yeah, go pick up a comic book. Good job. Well done. Sell some books. I do think a lot of it is, like, a lot of the newcomers. I will give it four and a half concerned citizens meetings, which is what Steve's invited to by Hydra. And Stan has said that the, he wouldn't have done it, but he thinks the writer is being very ambitious. And he is. I mean, like I said, he's stirring the pot. He's kudos to him. He's getting people who probably wouldn't have picked up this book to go pick up the book. I was choosing the pick this week. It was not my pick of the week. I only would have picked it because of all the controversy. And I know that people are expecting us to talk about it. Story-wise, you know, I, w- I didn't love it. I'm interested in it because of all that. But I didn't love it. Like I said, that's why I obviously I picked Doctor Strange. I'm curious about it, but I'm th- I feel very conflicted about it. And I give it four. You could have changed me younger back too. So moving on to Star Wars number 19, Marvel Comics, written by Jason Aaron, pencils by Lionel Francis Yu, and inks by Gary Allen Gullion. I'm going with that. And colors by Sunny Cho and Java. Man, that name. I'm sorry, Java. This is the second time I've had your name today. Tarta Gillia. I'm going to go with that. Tarta Gillia. Okay. Back on the Sun Prison thing. We find out that the mysterious figure who's been in there letting people out and bringing that is really was a spy from back in the Star Wars annual a year ago that that we read before. He's all messed up. Well, he got force lightning in the face by the Emperor. That'll mess you up. Yeah, all boily and nasty looking. He has Han and Luke and they're like knocked out with like, it looks like bombs, bandoliers on them. And basically he's saying you need to prove that you can run this rebellion to her and wants her to murder Afra. And Sada's like, hells yeah, I'll do that. I'm into that. And they're just arguing, yelling. She's like going, don't you dare. And, da, da, da. and you find out there's a little something, something happened that, that was in the past between Afra and Sana, which I actually thought it was going to be between Afra and Han, but now it's looks like it's between Sana. Maybe it was between all three of them. Who knows? Basically, she also says, don't ask to, when, when Leia's asking, like, don't bring it up. Sana's getting a little bit cooler, but still kind of annoying because she wasn't listening. But the, that panel where her and Leia are walking, I really like how that panel was drawn. But I still think Afra's cooler out of the new, out of the new female introductions. Dr. Afra is still the best. Basically, the sum up of, to me, the whole issue is this reveal of who this guy was and him basically over the course is, yes, you need to prove it. Kill us. No, don't kill her. No, I'm going to kill her. No, don't you know that's pretty much to me what it was and then like 3PO saying like I want to be transferred yeah they, oh yeah they chop the gravity that's one of the little ploys to help you know slow it down R2 sets off a EMP pulse to knock out all the electronics on the base including the droids yeah R2 today um I do like like oh we're as bad as rescuers as we are smugglers Luke says and then also like and Hans is like don't you dare mention what we did but you clearly he, he they must have because that I think that's where they're uh, like pertaining to Empire where she calls him a scruffy looking nerf herder is because she finds out that they did in fact herd nerf. Well as soon as Han makes Luke promise not to tell anyone immediately someone basically blows the cover for them. I mean you can swear someone to secrecy about a herd of nerfs but you can't cover up that smell. That was Sana. It's like Mother Moon it smells like nerfs in here yeah. But for the panel before that Han is telling Luke don't you dare tell anyone. I'm like okay that's a cute little like play onto what happens in Empire since this takes place before that. So that's how it was cute. 
It wasn't the best to me, the best Star Wars issue that's been out there. It was still okay. I mean, Jason Aaron, I still think, is doing a really good job with the field, but I could care less about that weird spy guy, and he's gross with all his boils. I'm really glad to see the annuals for both Darth Vader and Star Wars actually mattering. I like to see that return of the spy from the Star Wars annual. I also was struck by the harshness of this issue. There's a scene where you see, after the prison break and they're cleaning everything up, there's just rows and rows of body bags of people who are dead. And normally in Star Wars, even when people die, you don't see the bodies and you definitely don't see the aftermath. So that to me was interesting and a little disturbing. Because nobody gets shot. I don't know. I thought Mr. Boilface was uh, cool. I, I kind of enjoyed this one more than some of the other runs. It was nothing special. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was bad. It wasn't great. <laughs> it was kind of cool having all three of the ladies drop some whoop-ass on him. But, I mean, I don't know. To me, it's, it seems like, you know, having this super spy character that's all disfigured and stuff. I mean, that's always a potential future villain also, you know, because, I mean, he's a super spy, so he can break out any time, as you can see by the the tooth key thing that he busts out at the end. So, you know, I don't know. You know who does look like they could shoot someone and actually hit them? Yeah, those three stormtroopers at the end, the one who picks up the lightsaber, then the one who's got all the knives and, like, the commando-looking one. Those guys look badass, and I'm really excited to see them in action. Yeah. I'm with you there. Another thing that I liked is I can kind of sympathize with the villain here because he's seen things that the other characters have not seen. He's confronted Emperor Palpatine and he knows that he's a Dark Lord of the Sith. He's seen the full power of the dark side of the Force used against him. He's seen the machinations and schemes of the Emperor and how far ahead he is of them. And he knows that unless they're toughened up and ready for it, they're like lambs being led to the slaughter, that they're all going to die if they try and take on Emperor Palpatine right now. I liked it. I enjoyed... This is probably out of the ones that I've read from the Star Wars comics. This this is probably one of the better, better runs. I liked it. I'll give it like three and a quarter tooth keys. It's four space body bags. Space body bags! Put them in a body bag! So I had the second big book of the week. I had DC Universe Rebirth number one from DC Comics. Now there's a lot of people here, so it's written by Jeff Johns. And then there's, it's 80 pages, so there's like four or five separate stories. So there's a lot of artists. There's a lot of shit in here. <laughs> Art by, yeah, Gary Frank, Ethan Van Shriver, pencils by Ivan Rice, Phil Jimenez, Gary Frank, inks by Matt Santanelli, colors by Brad Anderson, Jason Wright, Joe Prada, and Gabe Eltis. So everybody and their grandma is on this, basically. <laughs> so this is a really interesting storytelling device to take you on a tour of the DC Universe. Pretty much. So this is the story of Wally West has been lost in the Speed Force. So Wally West is one of the speedsters like the Flash, right? So he tells you that if you run, basically if you run too fast in the Speed Force, that you'll kind of slip off the edge and be lost in like time and space forever. And he's kind of like this Speed Force ghost that's going throughout the DC universe trying to find someone who can remember him. Because he's he's basically from pre-Flashpoint, which is before the new 52. So he's going through the universe trying to find people who can remember him, which is a nice way to go to all the new parts of the DC universe that are going to get re- reborn in the their rebirths. So he goes to Batman, he goes to like Blue Beetle, he goes 
everywhere. He's, he's going all across the, the DC universe trying to get people to who remember him. And there's one woman that he's looking for, which is his like, special lady friend, basically, that has always been the person who can bring him back. He calls her his lightning rod. The speed force is, you know, is kind of lightning. So that's kind of what draws him back to the universe. And he finds her finally, but she doesn't recognize him, which is kind of heartbreaking and sad. So he has one last place that he can go is he goes to find Barry Allen. There's this really, I thought, kind of heartbreaking scene where I thought for sure that they were going to kill him, where he's in the speed force and he's breaking up, you know, and he has this scene where he's, thank you for this amazing life. And he's kind of ripping out of time and space. And I was like, oh man, they're really going all out here. They're going to, they're going to kill him right here. And that's when Barry kind of reaches through and grabs him and remembers him. Yeah, I thought, yeah, we're just going to kill him. Whatever. And I would say, yeah, I agree. I thought they're like, oh, this plot device was used up. We're going to kill him off. Yeah. He served it perfect. Especially because they're like, they're really kind of like epic panels of him dying. And I was like, oh, these are going to be the memorable ones, you know, but nope. Barry remembers him and Barry pulls him back, which I thought was really pretty awesome. And then there's an equally epic panel of them hugging and they remember each other, which is pretty cool. One of the things that he was telling Batman when he was trying to get Batman to remember him was, remember your father's letter. So then Batman, kind of the big reveal of the, the story is Batman goes to his father's letter and starts reading it and then looking at like the wall behind the letter. And that's when he finds the comedian's little smiley face button with the bullet hole in it and the blood. And that's when you realize that the Watchmen universe is here as well. So they had this device in the beginning with this watch that, that Wally West got. And he's talking about how watch was his grandfather's watch and his father's watch and what kept time. But then he lost it. You know, he lost time. Smuggled it up his ass from Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I totally thought of that too. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that too. That's what it made me think of when I was reading yeah. it. Was like I put this uncomfortable hunk of metal. Yeah, yeah. You got to get your Christopher mm-hmm. Walken to read that that part, right? So then it cuts to Mars, and you see this watch there that is being disassembled and then reassembled, which is, is kind of creepy on its own, especially if you know who Dr. Manhattan is. I mean, the Dr. Manhattan hangs out on Mars and does this kind of stuff all the time. And then they do this spectacular thing with the mm-hmm. watch where he then sets the watch to be 15 minutes till midnight, which is the Watchmen countdown mm-hmm. to, to Doomsday. And then you get this really great little panel at the end that yep. is basically the Watchmen symbol with the clock set to 15 minutes to midnight with a little blood spatter on it that says the clock is yeah. ticking. It's a really great device and way to kind of tease you to all the other books that DC is now going to be relaunching. Because you get to go to each little scene and get a page or two of them. They really get to the core of the character. Like there's a nice scene with Aquaman where he's proposing to Mera. There's scenes with the Blue Beetle. There's scenes with Green Arrow and Green Lantern. And, you know, like all the hits are there. It's it's really spectacular. I really enjoyed it. Um, But I'm a big DC fan. So I'm curious to see what people who are most definitely not fans of DC thought of this. I don't know where you fall on the whole DC thing, Rory, but I know where the girls fall. <laughs> I like Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, we like Batman. Kind of how me, you know, like, we, we tolerate Batman. Yeah. The thing is, though, I do love Watchmen, so that captured my interest, because I'm like, okay, I love Watchmen. And since it started with Batman, I was like, okay, I like Batman. I didn't hate it. Curious to see what happened. It really, that kind of drew me in. I mean, I, I do kind of say I did kind of, like, skim over the Aquaman part. <laughs> Everyone skims over Aquaman. Like, okay, love proposal. Okay, sure. I feel bad, but I totally, I, I admit it, I totally skimmed that part. You talk to fish, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't care. God damn it. He's one of the most powerful beings on the planet. I'm sorry. I like his outfit. 
it's all about Watchmen. I'm just like, oh, Watchmen. Oh, Owlman, yeah. Comedian and Batman in the same world. Okay. Osmandius and the Joker together. Wouldn't that be badass? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the tigers. I love his. Does he have tigers? The white tigers? Am I right? I think so. Yeah. I guess really Osmandius yeah. and Luther would be more of a better pairing, but yeah. Ooh. So that has so much potential for me. So I'm like, okay, DC. You got me. I'll, I'm going to, I'll read <laughs> Watchmen stuff. Okay. Don't fuck it up. Yeah, but you better not through this up or I'm going to be pissed. Don't fuck it up. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with I did not hate it on the level of I hate Super Bros. That's a good start for them. Speaking of which, did you read, I mean, you probably did, did you read the last issue of Superman and the last issue of Justice League? <laughs> no. Hey, they're no. really, really good. Both of those are easily five-star books. I would really recommend you go back and check them out. They're really good. I am going to read those because I did see at the very beginning of this book the tale takes place after those two, so I guess and it says that you were so read those first. Well, I fucking failed, and I did not read those first, but I will go back and I read I do those. have them saved, so I read yes. them, but I haven't. I totally like this book. I know that's probably warming your cold heart there, Ryan, that I liked this book. I actually really enjoyed it. The whole Flash thing, that that was sad. That was really sad. That was some really good, good writing. Like, that was legit. Yeah, Jeff Johns is a good writer. That was super, super good. Um, The Batman stuff was great, and that is exactly, of course, why I like it. The Batman and the Watchmen. I love I love the stories of the Watchmen. I would love to see what happens with the Watchmen. Is it, I mean, I don't exactly understand what they can overlap because aren't they different time periods? The they're in different parts of the multiverse, but yeah. they're going back to right before the New 52 to Flashpoint is kind of where this is picking up. So multiverses are colliding. Because I was wondering, I was like, is this, are they undoing the New 52? Are they just starting over from that point? Just a gimmick for the shits and giggles or? The New 52. Are we trying? Kind of got rid of a lot of the legacy of the DC universe, which a lot of people didn't like. And this one is very much about mm-hmm. legacy. They're bringing back yeah. old characters. They're so. Are they getting rid of the New Fifty Two? I don't think so. They did kill off the New Fifty Two Superman, who you guys hated. Now they have right. the more yeah. classic, I guess you would say, Superman back. And they're they're trying to, I think, bring back legacy. We'll see as Rebirth, cool. and we're going to read a shit ton of Rebirth books. So the Wonder Woman one is written by Greg Rucka. I don't know if you remember when we, we read Black Magic. Mm-hmm. It's the same creative team that's doing Wonder Woman. Sweet. Same artist, same writer. There also was a really cool scene in uh, an old folks home yeah. that I thought was really interesting. What do you think of it, Rory? I don't want to just be a DC hater just to be a DC hater, but I will say that generally I tend to not be as into most DC heroes. But I did think that they told a really good story here, or a series of them, I should say. First, I was like, oh no, they're bringing in the Flash. The Flash is so lame. Oh, hey, I just ran in here, Batman. You know, it's just, I've never really liked that character. It's like, oh, I can run fast. Great, man. Great. <laughs> you know? Run to Aquaman really fast and tell him to get the fish. <laughs> go, 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 go. Hopefully if you run fast enough into Aquaman, you'll kill each other. Yeah, this was some really quality storytelling. It probably made me a little bit more interested in getting into this one and seeing what they're doing with it. I don't really have anything super positive or negative to say other than my usual quips and stuff. It's interesting. I'm curious to see what they're going to do. I'm not like super boner, hard on excited. You know, it's just, yeah, just like I'm half-chubs. excited enough. Oh. I guess. <laughs> All right. I'll give it a good three-quarter chub. That's your rating? Three and three-quarter chub? (laughs) I really liked Rebirth. I think I would give it four speedsters. I'll be generous and give it, like, three gold helmets. The helmets of Dr. Fate. It took me back to the guy with the helmet last week on uh, Ant-Man. Oh, not every chick can handle a guy in a helmet. (laughs) I couldn't get past it. It was too soon. See, even a week later, we're still quoting Nick Spencer. He's a good writer, damn it. Definitely. (laughs) Oh, you know what mine's going to be. 
<laughs> I'll give you a hint. Lay it on us. I will give it. I'm thinking it's blue dicks. So I'll give it three and a half big blue dick. I did enjoy this. <laughs> you knew that was coming. Oh, Christina loves blue dicks. Yep. <laughs> I knew that was coming. That's why I'm like, I'm not going to take that. I'll give it three and three quarter comedian butt. DC is also redoing all their Hanna-Barbera stuff. And this week, it's Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo Apocalypse, issue number one by DC Comics, written by Keith Griffin and J.M. Dematius, art by Howard Porter. I, as a kid, actually did love Scooby-Doo. I still enjoy Scooby-Doo. I have not seen any of the actual movies because they look absolutely horrible. This is kind of fun. It's interesting because the world that they're in right now, I can't really tell if it's like Burning Man. I think they're a Burning Man. It's weird. It's like a Burning Man thing, which is, is kind of weird. So They show the little man off in the distance, but they call it something else, which I thought was fun. It's Burning Man. There's people doing drugs and wearing weird shit. That's all it is. Yeah, I think it was something like Blazing Man. I mean, the characters are essentially the same characters they are, except it seems like they're, they're all actually smart. I don't remember all of them actually being smart. I thought Daphne was kind of dumb and so was Fred. Fred seemed kind of dumb still. He was making comments that you're like, sing the little Oh, where it's like, mole people, werewolves, like all that. Yeah. Yeah. The story is basically, Velma is like some super genius. She works for this crazy company. Shaggy also works for it too as a dog trainer, which is really weird. Velma, I guess she goes to this weird portal out of the, the underground lab that she works for. She's going to be giving like the secrets of what they're doing. Scooby senses that she's in danger and comes running, uh, which is funny. And yeah, that's Fred is still dumb because he says that Scooby's a werewolf. I like the scene where Shaggy's like chasing after him, and he's like, "Scooby, Scooby Doo, where are you?" I yeah, you're like, Aww. I like that little. Yeah, there were some nod to at least like yeah. old school fans. I thought that were great. That yes, fun. it's weird. It's fun. I do have to say, I did enjoy it. I actually enjoyed the story afterwards more. Oh, the one with all the little the other Scooby dogs. You had like Scrappy Doo and the other dogs who were like how he came about Captain America thing where they inject them with stuff and they're making them these crazy war dogs and his obviously didn't take very well he was the smart he was original smart dog prototype and he wasn't you know it kind of failed on him somewhat intelligent but he's not like a battle dog they were gonna kill him and then no you know let me train him I thought that story was really cute and that's where he kind of speaks in the you get the rut row and all that kind of stuff I that I like I thought that was very cute and enjoyable the first story I mean yeah they're doing some weird apocalypse shit that's what it's all about I thought the second story was really cute I enjoyed this book a lot more than I thought I would. After the other Hanna-Barbera book, I was like, eh. But this was fun. I enjoyed this. It was fun. I also think it's hilarious that what's his bucket is a super hipster. <laughs> oh, Shaggy? Yeah. Well, because, like, Shaggy's supposed to be, like, the annoying counterculture doofus, right? <laughs> so yeah. our version of that is a hipster. Hipster douchebag. He's even got the hipster beard <laughs> and mustache, you know? Oh, yeah. Flannel shirt, yep. all that. That's fun. Interesting. It's cute. It's Scooby-Doo. It still has the characters. I mean, they're still, the essence is still there. Yes. I think they, they did that pretty pretty good. I think all the changes so, yeah. they made made sense. You know, the characters still felt like their characters. Yep. A little updated, you know, to more modern times, you know, but not losing their distinctive goofiness, I guess. It's going to be interesting to the next one because it looks like the apocalypse is here. Yes, they, so they have all the, 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 the crazy monster panels. I like that the monsters still look like they're from the 60s cartoon. <laughs> yep, they're all wearing masks, just you know. I'm sure they're all masks and they're going to rip them off and it's going to be old man something, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the whole thing. If it wasn't for those meddling kids, yeah. <laughs> yep, so what did you guys all 
Yay, nay. Hey, I say yay. I gave it three and a half rut rows. <laughs> How many Scooby Snacks did you give it? Give me three and a half Scooby Snacks. Okay, so I, saying, I wanted to hate this because I was a diehard Scooby fan. You know, when my life, I'm like, how dare you? That's kind of like, how dare you touch it? Like, how could you possibly? <laughs> you're just going to mess it up, DC. Rah, rah, rah. It weirdly worked, except for that I thought Daphne <laughs> looked like Jean 13. It yeah. almost like they just stuck her head on. I really liked the way Daphne looked. But she looked ex- like verbatim like another yeah. comic book character. So I was like, what is going on? That was distracting for me. And I, I think making Shaggy a hipster made sense in the revamp and i did like that they were at burning man i thought that was cute but yeah i actually thought it re- weirdly worked it does daphne was going uh gen 13 was like the one thing that really bothered i gave it three and a half knitting channel network <laughs> where their show airs yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and then rory you didn't get around to this one right uh, i didn't even bother reading it i'm a dick <laughs> hey we all gave it three and a half somethings it's not bad man well, I might go back and check it out, considering. I think if you had a cousin or a nephew or a kid or something like that, they would really like it. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So, those were the books we read this week. To check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page, Four Color Nerds. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and come on back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds. Cover looks cool for paper girls.